welcome to the Independent Author Podcast. I'm Tom Kranz. My sincere thanks to those of you who listen regularly. This podcast just reached 750 downloads, and I really appreciate you for that. My guest has spent his life as a teacher of children, adults, and other teachers. In the process, he's gathered a collection of teaching strategies that benefit not only other teachers, but those of us who write. Meet Frank T. Lyman, who has some great insights on learning, how we can teach learning, and how both are relevant to writers and anyone interested in better communication. You've taught pretty much all levels of human beings all the way through college and spent a lot of time teaching teachers how to teach. And that brings us to the subject of uh, your book, which is called 100 Teaching Ideas That Transform and transform learning. Uh, first of all, Frank, how are you today? I'm fine, Tom. I'm glad to be with you. Good. I appreciate you joining me. And for those of you out there who are who are teachers, uh, I, I hope that you'll spend the next 20 minutes with us here. But for those of you who are not teachers, don't go anywhere because you know I approach this this book as somebody who just said, you know. Uh, I'm kind of interested in what this teacher of teachers has to say about that subject. But as I read uh, many of the 100 ideas that he lists here, I realized how many of them are relevant to me as a writer and also and as a student of writing and also relevant to me in kind of my parallel life as uh, a part-time EMT and CPR instructor. So first of all, Frank, you spent all this time teaching and teaching teachers, was this, uh, did you just start life deciding you wanted to be a teacher or did you start out like, you know, as a cello player or something? <laughs> I was an only child. Uh, my, my mother took care of kids and I liked kids a lot. And when I was at uh, Haverford College, the uh, guy from Harvard came on and says, who wants to, is looking for people to come to their, their master's uh, in education. And uh, I was the only one there that wanted elementary. He thought it was better than anybody, everybody do that. Hmm. And I was encouraged. And so I went on to uh, I won your uh, master's program and was certified to teach elementary hmm. school. And you um, taught elementary school where? Uh, in uh, originally in Montgomery County, Maryland, two years and then Lexington, Massachusetts, in the uh, in the Ford Foundation, Harvard University, first team teaching project, which was sort of the foundation of a lot of the ideas in the book. And then you spent, uh, we talked briefly before we started here, but it seems like a lot of your a lot of your career was spent teaching teachers in this University of Maryland program. Can you just tell us about that real quick? Right. I came down to Maryland in 68 uh, to Columbia, the new town, and I worked, taught two years in elementary school there. And then Harvard, I mean, ha uh, uh, Maryland had a, a teacher education center program where they placed a, a joint appointment uh, with uh, the public schools, Howard County and Maryland in a set of schools. And then they sent every semester, 25, 26, or around 25 student teachers, which we placed, we got to know the school teachers, became friends with everybody, and we became just like part of the crowd. And we, for 26 years and 1,000 university students, I did that job. Wow. So um, as I said to our audience here, your book is comprised of basically 100 I don't want to call them tips because that sounds like we're telling people how to buy a car, right? It's a hundred different ideas on presenting, I guess, tools for teaching. And a lot of these seemed like they're aimed at children, younger children, maybe not all of them, but some are. 
Uh, and the thing that got, that got me the most, the thing that seems to be the underlying theme is involving students in the process, not just showing PowerPoints, not just lecturing, uh, and actually involving them in the process of learning. Otherwise, then you're talking about, you know, the difference between memorizing and comprehending. Can you talk a little bit about that that whole philosophy of drawing the, students into the process? Yeah, I, I, from suffering and watching and problem solving of all kinds, watching people fail, myself fail, realize that, that kids really were being left out, that we were sort of like the high priests of the mind. And so I decided, I mean, I guess one of the latest ways of saying it I've found is that uh, restoring students' minds to the rightful owners, the students themselves, <laughs> uh, having them talk with each other, which, of course, we should know that that's the only way to remember anything. You remember your response. And uh, having them actually create their own questions, from, in this case, from a set of, say, seven different ways of uh, thinking, cause and effect, similarity, difference, and so forth. So that they became what we call metacognitive, knowing how they know so knowing how you know and desiring to know are the are two major aspects of the book. Absolutely, um, I, I I guess I took some uh, some wisdom from that theme uh, in uh, recalling how that we teach EMTs uh, to be EMTs. Uh, I'm not going to you know go into a long dissertation about that, but for many years, it was all about doing powerpoints. Getting the, getting the young people together, uh, going through PowerPoints, presenting a series of skills that you had to learn, and then you were tested on the content of the PowerPoints and the content and the way of doing the skills, right? What it really came down to was memorizing a lot of numbers, doing a lot of mnemonic devices to remember sequences, and then passing the skills tests by doing certain skills a certain way in a certain order. Right. And back in the, I would guess, the mid-2010s, the, the EMT curriculum was changed, allegedly, to what they call competency-based learning. And they claimed they taste, they changed the, the, the way it was taught. You know, <laughs> you know, uh, we're going we're gonna to make sure that everybody understands what it is that they're learning here. And I, I, that sounded great to me. But at the end of the day, whether or not you got your certification was still dependent on whether you memorized certain numbers, you memorized sequences of skills, and you memorized how to do certain skills. And the teacher sat there with a checklist. Did they do this? Did they do this? Did they do this? And if one or two items were missing from... So to me, it was basically a relabeling of what had happened all along. And I always thought that there's got to be a better way to teach people to do this. So where the hell have you been, Frank? I mean, we could have used you and maybe your book uh, to do that. Now, I think EMTs are still taught the same way. Uh, I don't know what the fail rate is these days. I know that there's a, a shortage of EMTs, but uh, that seems to me like a way that would have been you know, something that would have been well well utilized in this curriculum. Well, you too, that uh, you, you learn your response. I was in graduate school, I, had a very fond, I was very fond of this professor. He says, you learn your response and you have to realize that. And he kept pushing that and I didn't get it. So then when I, uh, one day I was teaching uh, children, uh, reading to them about the, uh, the Chinese immigration. And, and then I asked them as a group, well, what, what did I just say? And nobody knew. They, the Chinese <laughs> had, uh, they had, uh, no, it was actually Italians and banana carts in New York. So then I said, talk to each other. Everybody talk. Everybody just talk to each other. And by God, they all knew. And my whole career shifted at that point. And I went, into para-learning half the time for the next three years in teaching there. And I think 
once I learned that uh, that I I put in practice this idea, and that's the origin of of the well-known think-pair-share technique, which is now worldwide. So, um, and and something that struck me about kind of what you just talked about is that it took them talking to each other to realize that they actually knew the answers to the question. Absolutely. Um, And what I find, and I find, I kind of paralleled that to my writing process where, and other people's, and I, I, you know, I kind of, I'm not an expert on writing, believe me, I just know what I know, but people ask me, how do you get started? Because the hardest part of writing a book or a novel can be the very first, you know, sentence. And I tell them, you know, what worked for me is to not, is to not sit there and think about the answer. It's to just sit and write. Okay. There's a movie out there. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's called Finding Forrester. It stars Sean Connery. And he plays this reclusive writer who had his one big novel. And he makes friends with this teenager who doesn't know how to write. The Sean Connery uh, character sits him down at a typewriter and he sits next to his typewriter. And he says, all right, just start to write. And the kid says, what do I write, or write about? He said, don't think about that. Just write. Damn it. And so he starts to write. And that's what I tell people. And that's what I've done myself. I sit down and I start to write. And as I start to write, then, you know, what's kind of inside comes out and I come back 10 minutes later and I read what I write and I said, oh, okay, that's, I knew how I wanted to start. I just didn't do it. So that seems to me like, you know, a principle that, that works. It does work. Um, uh, The epiphany I had there, and this book is about epiphanies. It's about eureka moments where I said, wait a minute, this, everything changes with this. And I had these kids writing stories and the third graders and they couldn't do it. One kid wrote this terrific Winnie the Pooh story, practically AAML. I couldn't understand. So I went to this other teacher and I said, how does this happen that only one kid can do this? She said, Frank, for God's sake, you have to teach them the craft. They have to understand the craft of writing. They have to have models. They have to write descriptive work. They have to get into it. They have to see themselves in the scene. They have to be observers. You have to do in pieces. You cannot and they have to then believe in themselves as writers. From that point on, my career changed. And I did that a lot. And then we took this descriptive writing they did and, and turned it into free verse poetry. Everything changed. So that is a very, very important thing they had to, uh, that I learned about writing. So writing. actually doing a lot of reading, and as you called it, modeling, is actually important to develop young writers. Oh, yeah. We, we read them great uh, lines from great children's uh, books like Charlotte's Web. and. Uh, and then we, they actually tried to do right like that, and they did, and it was really something. So that brings me to uh, item number twenty-five in your book, which jumped out at me here. I have it in front of me, uh, and this one is called "Reading as Seeing with Hearing," and I'm just going to read a really small brief of it because this this really kind of this brought a couple things home to me. Yeah. And you say recently, a first grader marveled that she didn't know how she learned to read. She and many other young children have learned to read before they enter first grade. If they can learn to read without knowing how they did it, and even without their parents, quote, teaching them purposely, then perhaps the secret of how can be used in school. The secret seems to be that they have been read to consistently, are surrounded by books, and most importantly, perhaps have had their eyes on the page as they listen to the reading. What better way to learn to read than seeing the words as one listens to them? So I just found it. You know, it never occurred to me that I never knew how I learned to read either. You know, one day I 
you know, I'm sitting there in second grade in Mrs. Junk's class and I'm reading shit, you know, and it, <laughs> I could never have described how that process happened. But I go through classic comics. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so how do you, you know, teaching people how to teach kids to read, that's got to be a lifetime of, is it trial and error? Is it knowledge? Is it what? I was terrible at that uh, in any sort of classical sense. But um, I will say this, uh, in working with student teachers, I, I, I came to understand that there's much more reading than, than, say, phonics and that type of thing, which I also, I sort of suspected. But um, um, th that story, and th the one you just read, comes from my, my daughter. One day we were playing Uncle Wiggly with my daughter at the age of perhaps three and a half. Four. She's kind of an exceptional person still in, in the literature and writing and so forth. But she read the Uncle Wiggly cards. We had no idea she could read. Hmm. Now, she what, what had happened was she had the 45 records and the little book that goes ding and the page turns. She had been following those pages for probably several months. And we didn't really know that she learned to, that she learned to read. So that's how that particular principle came to me. But there is research in education that shows that children who see the words and hear the words at the same time can learn to read. So reading to your kid is not just something to help them sleep. It actually is helpful. No, and particularly in this case, when they actually can see the words or actually read the book enough times, they can look at the book and remember it and they can do the same thing. More with Frank Lyman in a moment. Here's a quick preview of another podcast for independent authors and writers in the making. Hey authors, welcome to Writer in the Making. My name is Daria White. Here on this podcast, you'll find out more about my work as a sweet romance author, some encouraging tips. I have pep talks and also I have even some writer's tips for you all to help you as you grow in your craft as an independent author. So I love being an author and I know you do too. And sometimes on this podcast, you may even hear a guest or two as I collab with other authors who will help share things that they have learned in their writing career, as well as some encouraging words to keep you all motivated and so that we all can be successful in this business. So new episodes are every single week. Thank you all so much for tuning in to Writer in the Making, because if you wrote a book, it is already unique because you wrote it and no one can write a book like you. So God bless. Thanks so much for listening. So I want to also, I bookmarked, uh, item number 27 in your book. And this one's called Novel Beginnings. And this one smacked me in the face because this, uh, this speaks to what every writer of pretty much every book, fiction, nonfiction uh, deals with, which is how to start. Right. It's always been the hardest part for me. And you write, <clears throat> how does an author begin a story? It can be argued that the first sentence of a story is the most important of all. As with great lines of poetry, students can look for great beginning sentences of books and develop a concept of what makes the sentences great. Also, they can try to write another first page from the selected first line and can create multiple first lines themselves from which to begin a story. A class collection of beginning lines can be posted from which students can write. And you go on here, and again, this talks to that whole concept of you know, just writing, you know, let's get, get, get some first lines down, read some first lines, use them as models and make a collection. And that's kind of the beginning. I, I love that. I, I do too. Uh, and related to that is um, my daughter in first grade um, 
she wrote a letter to Sonny Jurgensen telling him how sorry she was about his hurting his foot. <laughs> and anyway, she was able to do it. But yet they were giving her all these worksheets. And I, I said to the teachers, look, just let's just write down 80 things that Sarah likes. I'll write them down. We'll put them on a little little chain. And when she comes in, just has a little chain and she'll and to flip through it and she'll find something she wants to write. Big problem in schools. Nobody can remember what they know and what they did or what mm. they do. So that that was a flop in that situation. But it's an idea related to what you're doing there. So and uh, the last one that I wanted to I wanted to bookmark and talk to you about was item 26, which is called comprehension or memory question mark. And this goes okay. back to what we were talking about. You know, are you memorizing shit or are you actually learning the stuff? Yeah. And you write, when students are said to be having difficulty with reading comprehension, they have usually been tested in part on what they remember. So aren't they being tested for recall? If so, then how does one recall what has been read? The answer would seem to be that one recalls what one has repeated or discussed. Right. Certainly, this is true for most of us. This being true, students should discuss what they read right after they read it if they are to be tested on what they remember and comprehend. So this goes on. It seems to be more like a, a how-to kind of test on what you just remembered. But I, I guess I wish there was a little bit more here on kind of remembering versus comprehending because the two really aren't the same, are they? They're not. And they're treated the same. And that's what see, my, my book has lots of um, destruction of myths. <laughs> myths is that this is reading comprehension. The kid takes a test, he reads a thing, and now he's comprehending. No, no, he's recalling it or he's not recalling it. But to comprehend it means you have to understand it. And it doesn't mean you just can repeat it. So um, I, I try to make that point. Right. Well, um, you know, I've only touched on a few of these things. There's a hundred of these little uh, excerpts, ideas, uh, that, and the book is called A Hundred Teaching Ideas that transfer and transform learning. But, you know, there's so much more here than just a kind of a how-to for teachers. There's a lot of ideas here on, on, on things like relating to kids, anybody who has anything to do with reading, reading to children, teaching almost anything. There's a million ideas in here that will make you, I think, a better teacher, or at least think about things that you hadn't thought about. Frank, if uh, people wanted to buy this book, where would they find it? Uh, just look at uh, Rutledge, uh, R-U-T, R-U-T-L-E-D-G-E press and just type in 100 ideas and it'll come right up and show you how to do it. Okay. And um, I think I, I think I searched for it and I think it's on Amazon too, if I'm not mistaken. I couldn't find it there. It is yeah. there. But, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think there's at least uh, the, the regular hardback edition. I'm sorry. The, yeah, the one of the hardback or the paperback edition is there. Well, uh, made, anyway, uh, Frank. Good point there, Tom, that yeah. about the, the affective aspects here. It's noticing kids. That's the, it's, it's a central aspect of the book. One teacher said to me one time, they don't know they're, they're there until you look at them. And I mean, there's a lot in there about noticing. And uh, I have friends now from 1960. I taught my first year in teaching sixth grade that my Harvard professor said I stunk when he came down to watch me. And uh, <laughs> I have friends there in that group in 1960. And only because I guess I noticed them. You know, I wish you were one of my high school teachers because my high school experience wasn't great. And I'm not going to go in at, at length about this, but, and I had a couple of really wonderful teachers, a couple of English teachers specifically, but there were a couple of teachers there who were so obviously just kind of going through the motions. This is something they'd done for years. 
they didn't really care. I mean, they just, to them, it was getting through another 45 minute session and it was reflected in the attention span of the kids. These teachers put up with a lot of abuse by kids who didn't pay attention, talked. Some of them openly made fun of these teachers. And, you know, it was all about like just getting through the day. So I could have used you back at Central High School, but I have a feeling a lot of kids and teachers have benefited from uh, from your ideas here. Say one more thing, Tom. Basically, this book is a thinking teacher's book. It is a teacher as scientist book. It's a teacher looking, reading something and saying, hey, I get the principle. I can apply that to my work. Uh, it, it, it encourages um, uh, moments of, uh, of discovery. It uh, was turned down by three presses for not being detailed enough. They said, well, the teacher needs to know what to do every minute. No, the teacher needs to have something to think about uh, and ways of thinking about it. So they were looking for more of a how-to kind of thing? Yeah, they were, and I'm not yeah. doing that. Yeah, gotcha. I mean, there, yeah, there's some of that in there. There are things in there that I've never done, <laughs> that I've never seen done. I just made them up, yeah. four or five anyway. Well, I like you more and more the more we talk. But I think we're going to wrap it up at this point, Frank. I really appreciate you being with us. Uh, and I, I hope that everybody, uh, you know, takes a little bit of time to, you know, at least the very least listen to this podcast five or six times, but at the very most buy Frank's book, because there's something in there for almost everybody. Frank T. Lyme, an author of 100 Teaching Ideas That Transfer and Transform Learning. Thank you so much for being with me. Thanks, Tom. It was a pleasure. Thank you.